Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much, and welcome to all of you. I love our topic, the great breakup. Women in the workplace, the great breakup, and how companies can support women leaders. So I want to thank you all for joining us, and I'm really delighted to be here moderating today's program, and especially with the two wonderful leaders that we have on our panel. Um, So let's just dive right in and meet them. And it is my pleasure to welcome Beverly Anderson, and Beverly, do you like to go by Bev? Is that- Bev is fine. Yes, right. please. Um, President and CEO of BECU, the fourth largest credit union in the U.S. Bev has more than 30 years of experience in the financial services industry and became the president and CEO of BECU in December of 2022. And she's responsible for all aspects of leading an organization with more than 1.3 million members and 30.2 billion in assets. And Beverly's core areas of focus include strategy development and sustainable growth, oversight of daily operational activities, and fostering BECU's culture of promoting the financial well-being of its members and communities. So welcome. Thank you. And also, please join me in welcoming Alexis Krivkovich, who is Senior Partner at uh, McKinsey & Company. Did I say it right? You got it right. Oh. <laughs> we practiced, it's a good omen. <laughs> we practiced your name, and I'm so glad. But she's senior partner at McKinsey and Company and co-founder and author of the annual Women in the Workplace Report. And that's really kind of the foundation of what we're going to talk about today, the findings. Alexis leads McKinsey's Bay Area office and the firm's financial technology work in North America. And she serves as uh, financial services. She serves financial services and technology companies as they seek to align their organizations for growth and productivity. And she's led high-profile efforts to drive change at scale, including enhancing customer experience journeys, innovating products and services, and redesigning operating models for agility. Now, Alexis, have you two worked together? Is that part we of We might know each might other just know a little bit. <laughs> I thought so. In past... We um, go way back. That's wonderful. So I want to give the audience a quick reminder. Um, if you're here with us in San Francisco, please turn off your cell phones. But we want to hear from you. So if you have a question, please write it on the question cards that are near your seats. And if you're watching along with us online, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube. And we'll be getting to audience questions about the last 15 or 20 minutes of of our conversation. So I am just going to dive right in. And Alexis, I'm going to start with you because we want to understand this report and really understand what some of the key findings are. And and, um, help us understand a little of the history of it as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, So the data we'll be talking about is from the eighth year of our report. It was published last fall. Uh, It's now grown to be the largest data set that exists on diversity in corporate America. It's a tremendous amount of information we get to draw from. It covers all industry sectors um, in the U.S. and generally focuses on companies at scale and those positions that really ladder up over time to executive roles. Um, And the focus of that was really 
you know, very selfishly for myself years ago, I felt like I looked around as I rose into leadership and the clients I had the opportunity to work with, the companies that I served, even inside McKinsey itself, I didn't see the diversity of leaders I expected. I mean, women have graduated with more college degrees on average every one of the past 30 years. And yet, even today, we're at one in four women in the C-suite. And if you're a woman of color, like Bev, it's one in 20. Um, and that's, you know, that's 2022, 2023, right? When we started this report eight years ago, that number was one in five. So we're making progress, but boy, you know, we have a long way to go. And what I really felt, um, and many of us did, was a sense that we weren't talking about this issue that's so important about talent, about how to make sure great talent rises equally to the top to lead in the way we talked about all other business issues. There was just this lack of information underlying the conversation we were trying to have. And there's no business issue that I know how to solve if you don't have good data underneath it. And so that was really the journey behind the report. The very first year, our headline was 100 years. It will take over 100 years to reach parity in the C-suite. That was an extremely startling <laughs> and disturbing number. In fact, I told our team at the time, you know, you got to build a better model. Like, that can't be right. And then they call me and say, it's 250 years, it's 340 years. And I was like, no, no, no. Okay, go back to the napkin math. <laughs> we'll start at 100. Um, but so we are making progress, but the progress has just been too slow. And so the headline for this year was the great breakup because the great breakup reflects the first time in the history of us um, following this data so closely that we see women starting to leave at much higher rates than ever before and higher rates than men um, to a very large degree. And not all of that can be explained by a COVID delay. And in fact, to put it in context, for every woman who steps into up from a director position, you see two women exiting out. And in a scenario where you're at one in four in the C-suite, that math will not sustain progress. In fact, that math will roll back progress over time. And so it's a real moment for companies to be thinking about, do they have the value proposition that's going to keep this great diverse talent with them, or are they going to see it walk out the door? And sort of as if, are they, are they walking out the door and leaving that company? Are they walking out the door and leaving the workforce for a time? Yeah. I mean, what's the... Well, I think the... Encouragement is that many of these women are saying they're leaving for better opportunity, that what they want to see is a company that delivers on the promise that now every company we survey says they are committed to, which is greater diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplace, but many companies aren't yet delivering on in terms of results. And so they want to see environments where they're going to get a fair shot. Um, and equal recognition for the work they do. And I know we'll talk more about some of the ways that women show up disproportionately already in the workplace, many of which are not, not only not measured well, they're certainly not um, rewarded today formally, even though they contribute to really important and necessary work. But a lot of these women are saying they want to see something else. Um, and so I think there's a chance that for some companies, it's a real win if you can deliver on that promise. Uh, the risk is that, you know, for many of these women, you know, they may ultimately, in many cases, decide to exit entirely, go do their own thing, try and find other opportunities on their own. Yeah. And Bev, I'm just curious, you know, from from the experience of your career and, and the trajectory of it, 
and from your um, place as the CEO. Um, how do you respond to that? What, what's your experience of it, in, both in observation of other women and, and even in your, in your own personal journey? Well, first of all, thank you all for being here, those of you in the room and those who are uh, online. And I'm excited to be here uh, with Alexis and the data and the reports that you have produced over the last eight years give um, credence, give facts and data to, I think, what many of us have experienced uh, for many, many years uh, over time in the the uh, workplace, uh, trying to figure out how to continue to advance and thrive in the face of such a dearth of uh, diverse talent. Uh, first, let me talk a little bit about kind of what I feel like this experience over the last several years has been like, particularly for women, and then maybe I can just talk a little bit about my own experience. When you think about the last several years of uh, social unrest, the pandemic, um, changes in the workplace, the political environment that has just been sort of all-consuming. I think people in general feel uh, burnt out, um, fatigued, and I think that is even more uh, heightened for women who are not only caring for things at work, but they are caregivers at home. And so it's, it's, it's not surprising. It was shocking to see the great degree, but it's quite not surprising to see the, this notion of the great breakup. Um, and I think about it in terms of my own sort of journey that led me to BECU. When I left my last company, I decided that I just could not go have another job. This job had to be different. It had to look different. And there were three things that were really important to me. The first one was it had to be purpose-driven. The, the company had to have a mission. I had to feel like I had an impact. I just could not be another cog in the wheel. And I think women in particular are starting to feel that way about their ability to have impact at work. Uh, for me, the second one was the job had to be substantial. Um, I remember starting to have conversations, telling my own story about what I wanted to do next. And people kept saying, you should just be a CEO. And I, I was not thinking about that at all because I didn't know if I could be. And again, we can talk about how women show up versus, you know, men in terms of understanding our own worth and value. But I decided after a while that, you know what? Sure, I can be. I've had plenty of years of experience, and so why not? And then the third was I needed to land in a place where I knew uh, the people surrounding me would be supportive of my authentic self. And I truly believe that for women, they're looking for, we are looking for ways to be our authentic selves, to bring our best selves to work. Uh, to have the flexibility to do that in the way that we want to do that. So I believe this is a uh, watershed moment for uh, women in the workplace and what happens next. And I think companies, including BECU, have to realize and figure out how to adjust and and conform to what is needed, or we're going to lose such incredible talent. Yeah. So Alexis, how much would you say the the three years of the, the pandemic and the remote work and, and sort of the circumstances 
contributed to this? Was this something that was going to happen? Um, and, you know, what, what are all the underlying factors that have accelerated this great breakup? Well, that would take us all night. <laughs> but let me let me paint a little bit of the of the story of what we've come through with the pandemic. Um, so we had long measured the double shift. And any of you here who have household responsibilities, if your parents, if you handle elder care, whatever that is, the double shift is effectively the measured, fact-driven measured phenomenon that women maintain more household responsibilities even as they rise up in leadership um, in, their, um, in their careers. And that is irrespective of with their, whether they're a shared breadwinner, the primary breadwinner, you see this phenomenon where they just continue to hold the bag. In fact, the bag just gets bigger and bigger. And through COVID, that double shift um, exploded. The, as one example of many, mothers with young children described doing an extra three hours a day of household work. Three hours a day is like another halftime job on top of the job with, that already had a halftime job. So now you're like double, you're double driving. But what we've seen on top of that is in the workplace, women are now doing the triple shift, which is to say, even though they're half as many female leaders, they're doing twice as much sponsorship. They're twice as likely to be leading and championing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, which over time through COVID started to include mental health, um, personal balance and well-being, uh, managing people's you know, depression and ability to kind of work remotely or hybrid through all these changing periods, racial justice conversations, inclusivity discussions. I mean, this is intense and significant ground, and women leaders have been showing up disproportionately doing that. Um, over time. And through COVID, that became increasingly important to companies. In fact, 80% of companies said they value that. They need to see that from their managers and they're asking for more. But only about 25% of companies said they reward that in a performance review. So now you're doing the double shift at home, you're doing the triple shift at work, but none of that shows up formally when you go to raise your hand for that next opportunity. And I think that's the real bind we see for women talent. And the ambition is there. We have measured since the beginning. The ambition for women is there. The ambition for women of color, black women in particular, is the highest of all talent groups. But the headwinds in front of that are significant. And they're not just social and cultural hangovers. Many of them are actually created and perpetuated in the workplace itself by not recognizing, rewarding these roles that we say are critically important. Sponsorship is incredibly important to apprentice a next generation of talent. But if you ask your diverse leaders to hold that responsibility disproportionately for an entire organization, you overload them in the process. And that's one of the pieces that's underneath why it's no surprise so many women leaders say they're burned out, right? They're, they're worn out. Um, and they want to see an environment just like Bev, your terrific example for yourself, where the effort they're putting in, the reward they get back, not just monetary, not just opportunity, but just recognition is worth all of that investment. So interesting. I'm, it's uh, so, so there's kind of a double question here, which is what are the things that companies need to do and really pay attention to? I mean, this is like a wake-up call, right? 
And at the same time, I'm going to ask, these are kind of two questions. The the women who are looking to get to the right place, you know, to, to find that that better spot, what do they need to do to ensure they are getting to that better place, you know, and, and that all the things that are the most important to them. So I guess, how do we answer those two questions? Um, That's an easy one, Bev. Why don't yeah, you go first? <laughs> yeah, I have to fill that plate full, right? But, well, you know, it's, it's funny because right now we're trying to figure out um, how to think about this. Mm-hmm. You know, flexibility is at the top of the list of things that uh, women in particular, but but employees in general are thinking about. And it shows up, you know, most uh, acutely in the, do we, do we re- uh, work remotely? Do we work hybrid? Are people coming back into the office? And it's such an interesting debate. And I remember, so I lived in Georgia uh, through the uh, longest part of the, of COVID and have just recently uh, moved to Seattle, the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, well, and of course, in Georgia, you know, the pandemic never occurred. So I thought, I thought, okay, well, I'll show up and I'm so excited about work. People will come back. And we're still trying to figure out what the right answer is. And people are very, very clear. And I'll just, I'll, I'll share a story because it was so interesting. This young woman, we were doing a, a hybrid uh, uh, conversation and a young woman basically said, coming into the office no longer fits my lifestyle. I am a great employee. I do really good work, but I run in the morning. I walk my dog. I have yoga. I do, you know, and, and she was bold enough to tell me and I was excited to hear it. And at first I I was a little bit offended because I'm a baby boomer. And I thought, well, seriously, (laughs) you know, but then I realized this is the new normal. This is how people see their lives. And work is a component part, but it's not everything. And so companies are going to have to figure out how to create flexibility, how to, d- to develop people in a new environment, how to create and provide sponsorship, how to, how to train and provide feedback in the moment, all of this in very new ways. And then to answer your second question about, so then what do, what do women want and what should they do if they expect the um, advancement and, the, and the, the opportunities, I think they've got to also lean in a bit to some of that flexibility, which means there are going to be times when you do have to show up. There's, there's a way to connect. There's a way to learn. There's a, there's, a, there's a way of being present that's just important. I don't know how uh, companies are going to continue to drive change, to drive um, forward progress, to innovate without some level of human interaction. We have to figure out the balance. I can't say that I figured it out, but I do believe that there has to be some balance. I don't know what your what yeah, your I mean says. What was fascinating to me was before the pandemic, the number one thing women said would help them be more present, more competitive, and succeed in the workplace was greater flexibility. Now, greater flexibility didn't mean the 100% remote. It could mean a lot of different things about how you stack it up. But in the context of a reality where we have all those extra efforts going on for women in particular, greater flexibility um, makes a huge difference. Uh, COVID forced the largest experiment we never would have wished for on extreme 
flexibility by forcing extreme remote work for many knowledge workers, certainly not everyone, but for many people. And, you know, every company I spoke to, if you had told them at the outset, well, one day we'll wake up and we'll just all not go in for a very long time with no plan for how that's going to, they'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? And then it like, lo and behold, we had met this moment of technology and everything else that enabled it to work so much better than anyone would have thought. And I truly believe we'll never go back in the sense that the technology met the moment of preference, generational shifts, everything else. But a lot of what I see with clients right now is there was sort of a, a set of tailwinds that was carrying us through that moment that was built in many cases on relationships that had long preceded, that was built on mentorship and sponsorship that had started with sparks that happened in in-person moments, sometimes planned and many times unintended um, accidental meetings. And so there's this great benefit of what we've unleashed that we have to figure out how to hold on to because there truly is no virtual cost to adding a tile to your um, Zoom meeting, right? You can pull another seat up to the table. You can make sure everybody has a voice. I mean, there's even, there, you know, there's even the like raise my hand emoji. I mean, like there's like no way to avoid how much equality you could create if you run that well. But I do worry about how will we carry forward mentorship and sponsorship and recognizing, you know, people have different preferences about wanting to go back. And one of the things we found is because women were not having as great an experience in the workplace before, because we saw higher levels of microaggressions, which are the like small thousand paper cuts of ways that women disproportionately end up feeling undermined or not supported in the workplace. You're, you know, asked to do the um, menial tasks, you're challenged on your credibility, you're talked over, you're mistaken for someone more junior. These things happen to everybody, but they disproportionately happen to women, disproportionately to women of color, women with disability, um, women with difference. They liked the virtual environment because a lot of that went away and was reduced. And so how do we get some of the benefit of that? But we don't lose exactly what you're saying, Bev, this ability to actually, in moments that matter and in ways that sustain, create those interactions. Because if all the men come running back into the office <laughs> and the women don't, we're going to just further exacerbate some of what we already see in the data, which is networks that are not fairly balanced, that leave women with far fewer supporters over time. I think one of the things that I, um, that I discovered, uh, to your point, is this notion of networks that had started to form prior to the pandemic. And so people had these relationships. There's a, a great book about um, kind of remote trust building. But people had these relationships prior to all being sent home literally one day. And, those, and they could rely on those relationships uh, to deliver value, to get work done, to, you know, have good mentorship conversations. The people who've been hired during the pandemic and during this sort of remote and hybrid work, they don't have those relationships to build upon. So then how do you create those relationships? And how do you, how do you give them sort of tail wins to support their development, their growth, their advancement? Um, those things have to be resolved. And so this notion of, of um, you know, 
employee early exits, I think is another data point that some companies are starting to see because people get in, they can't, they can't build those relationships, they can't get a toehold, and so they don't know how to navigate. So these are things I think that we also have to, to um, figure out as we think about what work looks like going forward. You know, and if it was already harder for um, women and for women of color, people of color to, you know, get to the same levels of advancement, you know, if if it's now just that much more difficult because of the relationships and the networks, that's got to be solved for. Yeah. I, so I want to talk, you, you, you speak of, and I think you've, in, in all of your studies, you've talked about, is it the missing the broken rung. The broken, the broken rung, right? And so I think it fits into this conversation, but to explain what the broken rung is and um, sort of what the, where it, how it has appeared throughout the different years of the study. So this for me has been one of the most fascinating and um, also unfortunately enduring <laughs> findings in the data, which is... Uh, what we call the broken rung, which is a phenomenon that while there's a tremendous amount of attention that's put at around advancement at the very top, where we don't see nearly the number of female CEOs and leaders and executive teams, that one in four, one in 20 number we talked about at the beginning, the greatest inequity between men and women advancing starts at the very first step up into manager. That very first promotion from individual contributor on up into management is the most imbalance between men and women. And if you just start with a proportional population for each, for every 100 men who moves forward, only 87 women do. And if you're a woman of color, 82. Now you might say, oh, 87, you know, we're like up, we're well north of 50. The problem is this is a law of large numbers, right? We're talking about first management position. Many cases it should be happening in the first five or so years, maybe seven of your career. For many people, that's before you have the complexity of senior politics in organizations, before you necessarily should need a lot of sponsorship to get there. Um, in many cases for women, increasingly, it's before they've started families and had to navigate that dynamic. It should be the easiest rung to step up into, and yet it's the most imbalanced. And companies never recover from that. I mean, it's a leaky pipe all the way, but that imbalance, that 87 or 82, sets you up for a scenario you can never build back. And the idea that you'll go out into the workplace and you'll just go find that talent that somebody else pushed forward is a fallacy too, because everyone else is experiencing the same thing. And at first it really puzzled me because it felt like this should be the easy stuff, but then you think about how these decisions get made and very often it's deep in organizations. It's, it doesn't have a ton of visibility. A lot of times the person who's thinking about who should hold their seat is already, because of the numbers, a man. And he's like, I have a data point of one. I'm, look, this worked well for me. I'm going to write these qualities down. And you end up with these job descriptions that notwithstanding great efforts by HR teams tend to be quite biased. They have a ton of gatekeeping in them, which is criteria that are you know, elements you think should matter, but aren't statistically predictable of success in a company, but they tend to be quite biased. So if you're expecting citations or certain accolades or experiences, and all of those criteria are actually quite biased themselves, you will just perpetuate that phenomenon. 
And so that's what we see with a broken rung is this first step up, we lose a ton of ground and we just can't ever quite gain it back. And I think the good thing in this moment and is, you know, when you name it and you put the data behind it, you can actually start measuring and looking at that in your own populations. And I've seen organizations that started in a really awful place. I mean, jaw-dropping levels of, well, that can't be right. <laughs> Let's go back and scrub those numbers. Step in and intervene um, and, you know, apply the rigor to root that out. But across the board, it's been one of the stickiest, most persistent things we see. Do you relate to that? I mean, in the organizations that you've grown up in or led? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I can think all the way through my own career or as a leader, you know, looking into the organization and wondering sort of why and how people get stuck. Um, but I, I think there are a couple of things that just really have to happen in organizations. And the first one is people need to look up and be able to see people who look like them. And this, I think, is the number one thing that companies have to start to do differently. There have to be people at the top who reflect the talent that you want to pull through the organization, and they have to become really important advocates for this kind of work, pulling through diverse talent, pulling through young women, pulling through people of color, then I think the second thing that has to happen is that there has to be a very rich talent strategy and pipeline at the, at the bottom, at the entry levels of the organization. So people have, to, people have to lean in and understand who's there, who should get the next assignment, who's ready for their first managerial role, and how do we make sure that we're managing diversity even at that level? And then what you talked about, Alexis, is so important, which is the measurement. If I don't have that data, I don't know. And so firms starting to get really clear about what's happening all along that funnel and making sure that they can address where they find those hot spots immediately, that's really important. One of the most successful young people I ever managed and mentored was a young woman sitting in a contact center and in one of my early roles. And I was a manager by that at that time. But I just thought something was amazing about the way she showed up, her ability to volunteer for new opportunities. We pulled her into another side of the business and, you know, she soared. But that's because someone cared enough to reach in and pull up. And I think that's the work that has to be done. And wasn't there a story that was early in your career where you, that was kind of the flip side of that until? Yes. 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 I was a little bit further along. So maybe I'd already been managing, but I was okay. at that critical, that critical juncture of uh, trying to get to kind of that next sort of VP level. And I had a manager that just, uh, we just did not connect. Uh, he was an older white gentleman. I was a, a an assertive, you know, young woman, really trying to trying to make a name for myself and do really good work, and we just were like oil and water. And every time we had an interaction, every meeting, you know, he would say something to diminish my work or make me feel smaller. And on Sunday nights, I would just roll up in a ball, just so anxious about going to work on Monday. And there was a more senior female African-American leader who saw me 
And she recognized the work that I could do. And one day, and I literally, I was, I was ready to leave. I had sort of said to, you know, the HR team, I think I can't do this anymore. It's time for me to go. And, uh, and she reached out and said, I have something that I think you could really do. You could really help me with. And it set my career on a different trajectory at that organization. And so it's so important for us to, you know, understand when there are opportunities like that for us to identify talent and pull them through the organization. But I think this is what's so powerful about your both your examples. In both cases, this was a diverse leader. So in one case, you pulling someone up and another more senior woman doing the same for you who identified and saw your situation and sort of plucked you out or you did the same when you paid it forward. And the challenge with the pipeline and the structure we have today is we cannot leave it to only the women, only the individuals of color to do that. Because now we have nearly 50% of women coming in in the entry positions, but already by management, first level management, we're at 40. By the time you get to mid-senior levels, you're at about a third. And at the C-suite where you really have the power positions to do that kind of true opportunity creation at the highest level, you know, we're down to 25%. It can't just be the women doing this. And so often what we see is that, you know, individuals overall, when you ask them, are you an ally to women, to women of color? 75%, 80% will say, yes, I am. It's amazing. 80% were set. Okay. Do you talk to them about their experience and how it's different than yours? That's like 40%. Do you ask them about their career ambition and coach them? It's only about 30%. Do you use your positional power to sponsor, mentor, or help a woman advance? 10%. So we have this sort of residual sense, oh, don't worry, I'm an ally. You just let me know when you need me. But we're going to be like waiting until the end of time, right? (laughs) What we need with the numbers we have is every leader. I mean, this is what I talk about when I sit down with executive teams. You may think you're not the best suited person because you don't have the shared experience. If you're sitting in a leadership seat, believe me, you are the person. Because what you need to be thinking about is how you're doing exactly what you just described, Bev, but for all of your talent, which means equally doing it for your diverse talent. And by the numbers, we don't see that today. What we see is women trying to pay it forward into the organization and pull up women. And we see men disproportionately doing it where they feel they have a shared experience with men. And if you run that through the numbers, what you get is a perpetuation of the imbalance we have today. I think, though, there's a really important point, and it's going to sound odd that I'm going to make the point. This notion of allyship is so powerful and so important. I think over the last, you know, three years or so, uh, men have been shouted at and have been shamed in ways that they are just unclear about how to move forward. I think there's some some men who are never going to move forward. There are many more men who want to, they don't know how. And I think if we can find a way to figure out how to bring them along in the right way, without shouting and shaming, but teaching, informing, uh, role-playing it, letting them see what it looks like, and acknowledging when they do it, 
I think there's a path that we, you know, we're not going to get everybody, but there are plenty who are willing to come. And I just think we have to, we have to change this narrative and do something a little bit differently because to your point, women can't do this alone. There just aren't enough of us to do the work. So I think we've got to figure out a way to enroll more men. So is it, all right, so what are some of the best practices, sort of the best ways that companies are able to build in some of this training and and uh, tracking the data and just actually making this kind of change? How, how can this be accomplished? Well, the first piece I truly believe starts with the, the data um, to your question and really de-averaging the story to understand what's going on at the at the micro level in your organization. I sit with a lot of companies where they go, well, you know, we're making progress. Good news. We're at 35, 40%. It's like, that's great. It's like, is that in your product teams? Well, no, it's a little lower there. In your engineering and tech team? No, also we're struggling a little bit over there. Running your P&L? Well, okay, not entirely over there. But boy, my marketing team is unbelievable. And I'm like, well, but... <laughs> If all the diversity is there, that's also not diverse. You know, this is about actually getting the benefit of different perspective. And difference doesn't only come in the form of gender or race. You know, it's all forms. But it's about getting the tension that comes with that. And in a lot of companies, they're rolling it all up. And then they're saying, okay, well, we're inching it. But what they're actually doing is they're creating these hot spots and then these sort of black holes or deserts where they don't have it. And so we really need to be thinking about it team by team at the first level. And a lot of companies, I think, have a few more steps to go to really engage on their data in a, in a much deeper way. And I think one of the challenges is if you think about the force of technology and innovation for a lot of companies, whether it's financial services or anywhere else, they're starting to feel this pressure of where the job growth is going to be is in precisely in the areas where they haven't been the strongest historically on, um, on that front. Uh, with making gains on diversity. And so they actually are starting to feel more headwinds, not not less in this moment. That for me is the first piece. And then the second one is I think we need to really move from practices on paper to seeing are we getting the outcomes we would expect um, in the day-to-day. So I, I sit with a lot of teams that have thrown like a lot of spaghetti on the wall. And then you say, okay, we'll link all those things you're doing to like the, the root cause you see or why you think that's the right stuff. You have limited finite time. This isn't the only priority of the company. Even if I wish it was your number one, two, and three. So like help me see why you're doing this. And many, in many cases, they can't actually connect to your point about am I trying to focus on entry-level positions because I'm not seeing nearly the diversity of candidates? Am I trying to promote people because my broken rung looks awful? Am I doing well on my broken rung, but I'm not launching into senior leadership? Like, there's really a lack of rigorous um, thinking underneath how that strategy is coming together. And so there are practices that we're celebrating that really aren't getting the results that we need. And if I could put one more and be greedy out there... You know, this triple shift, saying that we really care about great managers and leaders who show up in all of these important ways, but boy, we care so much about it, we're not going to reward that at all in our performance reviews. I mean, that just, that's both ridiculous, <laughs> but we have to break that phenomenon because this isn't 
this isn't just nice stuff that feels good. It's actually core to delivering business and performance results. I, I truly believe it. And if it matters to the company, then we've got to find ways to measure it and to celebrate it when we see it in any leader, men and women. I also think one other thing I would add is just linking um, all of this to goals and measurement at senior levels. You know, the only way things truly get done is to say you are responsible, you're held accountable, and asking the senior leadership of all of these organizations to sort of put their money where their mouth is and to, um, you know, incorporate you know, some sort of uh, progress and movement in their, in their uh, annual goals. Now, are we actually seeing more companies begin to do this, to really put, you know, the, the rubber to the road here on this? More measurement is certainly happening. Greater transparency and expectations at the top. Very few companies are putting teeth behind that today. I think you would also, I would agree with that and say that, you know, so many companies stepped forward with diversity initiatives, DEI, new leaders, um, particularly in 2020. And if you look forward now, 2023, you know, lots of interesting activities, not a lot of progress would be where I think most people would, would acknowledge. I just am wondering if the great breakup and the great resignation is going to possibly just snap. Are they understanding the, the why people are leaving, why people are in search of? Yeah, I mean, my, my great hope is this is a moment where companies that put the action behind the words are really able to leap ahead and that they attract the great diverse talent with them. Because that's what we hear not only from senior women, but increasingly from women at the start of their careers. I mean, women under 30 are more ambitious than ever. That, um, that ambition has only gone up in the past few years through COVID. And one of the biggest things they said they want to see, over two-thirds of them say, I want to see leaders in position who are having the type of life and success that I desire. And if I don't see it here, then for all your talk in the world... I'm going to, you know, take my skills and go somewhere else where I think I can find it. So I, I might ask how, and then I have some wonderful questions here from the audience, but I wanted to ask you one, just how are you using your positions to make a difference? And um, certainly by launching this study eight years ago, you've, you've been doing this, but I'm just curious, within your organizations, within the um, industries that you serve, how are you yourselves out there making a difference? I, you know, I feel like every, every opportunity I have to show up, it signals to the marketplace, it signals to people who look like me, it signals to people who don't look like me that it's possible. And, you know, when I think about the, uh, how hard it can be sometimes, uh, when I think about whether or not I'm done, I always think about there's a whole generation behind me who just needs to see that it's possible that someone like me can be sitting here. Someone like me can be the CEO of a, you know, large financial institution. And that gives me great joy. Um, I recently went to a, 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 um, an organizational uh, event in D.C. 
that represented the credit union space, and it was important for people to see me and important for people to know that one of the large institutions can be run by a woman of color. So that gives me great joy, and it gives me great hope. I'm excited about it. Well, I have three daughters, as a number of people um, know, and I really think of it as a a generational uh, ambition of mine to create an environment that welcomes them in a different different way. And when I started my career, I didn't think actually about my gender at all. I just thought we'd all show up, we'd all do great things and, you know, wonder, wonderful things would happen. And then you rise into leadership and you look around and you're like, wait, where did, where, where did everybody go? Uh, something's not working here. And so for me, it was, all, I mean, it was, this sounds silly because I should have good pattern recognition, but it, it was almost a shock to the system of like, wait, what? This is still, I thought we were sort of post-gender, like we're out there, we're all doing it, right? Girl power. And then you get there and you're like, where's the girl power? Where's it's not, it's not perpetuating. Uh, and so for me, it's like, if we can bring this data, if we can get to the root cause, if we can focus, not just on we wish, but you know, how we will get there. We can dismantle a lot of these pieces. I truly believe no leader wakes up saying, I want a really biased structure and system that perpetuates these issues because I'm going to bring in talent and then I'm just going to leave them there behind and only, nobody, nobody's thinking that, but the process is sort of has this momentum and inertia of its own. And so I feel like for me, it's very personal because it's how do we take out those pieces of interference that are keeping us from exactly what we want, which is all great talent all great talents, not just about women, but it's ultimately about all the great talent gets to rise equally when it deserves to. And so that's for me, my, my goal. I love it. All right. Well, here's, this is a great question here. What can individual employees do to advocate for change? Who wants to take that one? Well, I have one thought, um, in the spirit of, um, allyship. So there's, there's the brain science of how you're, mind filters information it thinks is unnecessary for you. And so this is the phenomenon that you spend no time looking at the cars that are driving by down the street. You decide you're in the market for a car and suddenly you're like, oh, I like that one. I don't like that. Oh, that's an interesting one. You get in a ride share. You're like, oh, let me check out the configuration here. You're suddenly your brain tells you it's important. The same thing happens with microaggressions and those smaller workplace interactions that disproportionately hit women and women of color more so than male peers. And anyone can be activated to see that. And what a lot of women describe when they are the only is it's exhausting to constantly say, well, wait, wait, let me just finish my thought. Or to have someone else kind of take the same idea you just shared and reshare it as their own. And to constantly police that situation if you face it yourself to a high degree. But we can all be activated to look for it. And I can tell you, if you observe that, if you just take the task to observe the next five interactions you're a part of and see, do you, do you see any patterns around microaggressions and then activate other people to look for it? The second you tell a leader, hey, I've noticed in our weekly meeting that, you know, these two people don't often get their voices heard or so-and-so often with their enthusiasm is interrupting, particularly the women on our team. Have you noticed that too? I can promise you their brain switches on, like buying a car mode, and they're immediately looking for those situations. And the second you do that, you create another voice in the room who can help kind of rebalance and do that active allyship that so many people want to bring, but they often don't know how. 
I echo the thought. I think we just have to support one another. Very great. So as people continue to choose to work from home, how do we support and encourage them to connect so they can mentor and coach and et cetera? It's so interesting. I'm doing all of these uh, listening tours now, and I'm finding just really cool ways that people are starting to connect. So, for example, I uh, one of the teams, the the leader has a uh, a Friday meeting that's a coffee chat. So they the team joins video. Everybody joins virtually, and all they do is sip their coffee or beverage, morning beverage of choice, and um, and talk about their lives. They share stories about their children, their pets, their, you know, what they're going to do over the weekend. No work. So things like that, I think, are really, really important. So people actually have to start to get creative about how they connect, mentor, spend time. Some, some people I know will, you know, wrap up a call and then they, uh, they know to call their, you know, if it's a boss, they call their, their team and they provide feedback. And it's like feedback in the moment, except it's video. So it has to be a little bit more organized, but they provide feedback in the moment. So those kinds of techniques, I think, are starting to happen. I love that. I think that's a good question. Like, how do you, the equivalent of we walked out of the room and as we're leaving the moment, you turn and say, I really liked how you did X. And next time when that happens, like, you got to, Think about if you're in a virtual or a more hybrid environment, how are you both creating those same moments or similar quality moments of micro apprenticeship? And then how are you making sure you still receive them? Because in a lot of organizations, what I see today is that really fell away with COVID and we haven't created a new set of rituals with much discipline to replace that. Yeah. I think we also have to be courageous enough if you... If you see behavior that isn't exactly what you expect, you have to lean in. You know, if someone is not producing or if someone's not, you know, speaking up virtually, then reach out, make sure everything's okay, ask a few questions, lean in a bit. And, you know, that's more work for leaders. And I think, you know, women tend to do that better because we're just natural, more naturally more caring. But I think that's really important to make sure that everybody's still doing okay and feeling productive at work. You know, I actually think you have to sort of make sure that you give yourself the time to, like, rem- to think about those things and respond to them. Yeah. You know, we move pretty fast when we're always, I'm thinking of a particular experience mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that we, where if you, if you don't deal with something like that, the moment passes. That's and, right. And, yeah. So here's one. What are your thoughts on conferences, clubhouses, and those sorts of things as places women and those looking to advance can build connections? You know, that's the old, it, it was kind of the old boys way of, of doing it. So what about for women, um, for mentorship and and those kinds of things? I'll just tell you that. So I spent um, uh, several months looking for my new best, best thing in 2022. And I went to every conference I had an opportunity to go to. Every sort of women's event, every, you know, uh, non-women's event, but just every event that I could go to. And it was so exciting. It was such a great way to connect, such a great way to build a network, to tell my story, to hear other people's stories and get motivated and inspired by them. I say, absolutely. It is the way 
to engage. And, and hopefully everyone is thinking about how to do that. I love that. Oops. All right. A um, couple of questions about sort of younger, you know, more junior, you know, where they're just not quite feeling they're ready for that management position or um, how can they sort of help advance, I guess, you know, advance uh, more opportunities for women. And just uh, if someone might be thinking they're ready for management, but they're quite young and don't have the experience yet, what's the, what's the advice to them? Um, well, I'll, I'll give the view from some of what we see in the data and then um, Bev can give the reality check <laughs> on top of that. Um, so I talked about the ambition we're seeing. I mean, the ambition is there um, for, the, for the young women here. Like, I am certain um, uh, that you have it and you feel it. Uh, it's so important not to anchor on, do I yet see the example of me in leadership? Because by the numbers... You will not. And if you're breaking new ground, if you're in sectors that are, you know, fast moving, shaping spaces, you're more likely tech, a bunch of areas, you're more likely to be an only. As you rise, you'll increasingly be an only. If you have the privilege of getting to Bev's seat, you will absolutely find yourself consistently an only. And so you can't look forward and say, I don't see the example of me. So therefore, my version of leadership must not be possible here. I mean, the only way we will get there is to to break that mindset, and I and I share that because it's it's really easy to do because most women who are early in their careers, that's one of the things they describe is I don't see enough examples that suggest to me it's possible, and I'm I'm losing faith. Uh, the second thing I think that's really important is to set your sights on something and then get specific, even if you plan to change the plan in not too long and communicate what you're trying to get to. Because what we see disproportionately is that men will apply for positions when they have 60% of the criteria met. Women will wait till they have 100, which means like you might as well wait 100 years <laughs> on top of that. You have to lean forward and into it. But on top of that, women don't get the feedback in the same way that helps them sharpen their experience and get to that 100% of the criteria. So when... When men receive feedback, they get a lot more direct feedback on business performance, um, sort of unfiltered. Women get a lot of the same feedback interpreted into communication, stylistic, and collaboration. So the guy gets pulled aside, that meeting wasn't good, your numbers weren't tight, you're not going to get to the next level if you can't sharpen this up. Woman gets told, you know, your message was a little unclear. The way you delivered that, I'm not sure everyone fully understand, understood your points. You need to make sure you're kind of convening a group that can help you achieve what you need to. Okay, they walk away with two very different ideas of what they have to get done. And so the advice I always give to women, particularly early in their career, is ask for feedback in a level of specificity that you want to receive back in terms of the input you get. I want to be in a seat like X within two years. What is the biggest skill gap you see that I need to close to be in that seat 24 months from now? You'll get a very different answer. Can I add a couple of things to that? I totally agree. So I think the first thing is if you're young and you're thinking about being in a managerial position, but you think you're not quite ready, you're probably already ready. To Alexis's point, we always wait longer. Women tend to always wait longer than we should to sort of raise our hand. I think the next thing you have to do is have a story. So how many of you know the guy at work 
who always is the guy who says, oh, by the way, I did this and this and it achieved that and that. And you're like, seriously, could you just shut up? <laughs> but that's his story. We don't tell our story. We usually have great work that we've done, great results, but we don't let anybody know because that's just not who we are. Well, you've got to get comfortable with that elevator pitch, that sound bite that says, I, I got something done. I was going to say another word, but I won't. I've got something done and I need to let you know about it. The third thing is you've got to figure out who to tell because the who to tell is your sponsor. Who's the person who's going to be excited about what you're doing and then go into a room and say, you know what? You know, Susie is doing really good work here. And I think she's ready for whatever the next thing is. And then you've got to tell them that you're ready for the next thing. I love the idea of feedback. We usually don't ask for feedback. Um, we usually don't ask for it in a way that is helpful. And I think you absolutely have to get it so you can hone the story, hone the work, and go after the next opportunity. But, oh, and there's one other thing. This whole notion of confidence, oh my God. So I'm sitting here, you know, 30 plus years into a career going, I don't know if I can be a CEO. You know, there are real things that you can do. I used to, you know, kind of several years ago in my career, put stickies on my mirror that reminded me of why I was awesome. And I know that sounds weird, but it worked, especially when I was working for that really difficult manager and we didn't see eye to eye. So every day I'd leave work feeling like an idiot and not good enough and what was I doing here and oh my God, I've got to quit. This mirror told me why I should just keep on trying because I knew that I was good at some things. So sometimes you have to tell yourself, and just be super open and honest, and then be courageous about it. So just a few things. Such great advice. Is, is sort of, what, what's some advice on how to actually find that sponsor, how to be proactive about um, enrolling people to be your sponsors? And I'll ask you through a few on that. I'll, let... uh, I'll start with, um, it's always interesting to find someone who's interested in you. And, uh, you know, there will be someone who asks questions about your work if you're presenting, whether it's virtually or in person, and there's someone, you know, at a, at a leadership level who seems to be paying attention, then follow up and start to build a relationship, especially if that person is in a position of strength and power and decision-making because a sponsor is not a mentor. A sponsor is the person who's at the table who can pound the table for you, who can advocate for you. And you need to find who that person is and really build that relationship. You know, I am surprised at the times when people will shoot me an email, send me a chat, say they want five minutes. And guess what? I give it to them because if they took the time and if they have the courage to reach out and if I can make that time, I make it because that's someone who really wants me to know that they're there. So I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit of art and science. You've got to find the person who's paying attention and then you've got to go cultivate a relationship. To me, that's the, it, you know, any of these programmatic 
processes, they tend to not work. This is this is more of a symbiotic relationship that comes together uh, through mutual effort. I really like your call out about not mixing sponsorship from mentorship from community. I see a lot of commingling that in organizations, in teams and individuals. Um, and really, you know, when leaders say, oh, I sponsor, I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of diversity. I sponsor 25 people. And I think, no, you don't. There's no way. Like, you don't have enough time, power, advocacy. You can't pound the table 25 different places <laughs> and get much done. Um, you might be doing mentorship. You might just be giving free advice over coffee. Who knows? But you're certainly not doing true sponsorship. And similarly, you don't need 20 people in your in your community, you need one, maybe two, maybe three over time. You don't even need to start there. I'm a big believer in build your personal board of directors. Not every person on it needs to play the same role for you. Over time, you want one of those people Beth's describing. You absolutely do. But you also need someone who's kind of outside your organization, maybe, who you can take something to and say, hey, does this feel right to you? I did this, I did that. I mean, I'm worried about you know, do I have opportunity or not here? You need someone who picks you up, who's like your mirror with post-it notes, who's going to tell you how awesome you are. You need a bunch of those different profiles over time. And starting with what's the list you've got? Where do you have the opportunity to invest to try and build some relationships into that? And where do you maybe have gaps that however you do it through networking or otherwise you want to hopefully fill? Well, I'll tell you, this is such a rich conversation. We are at the point where we have time for only one more question. So it probably has to be a good one. But, you know, maybe if you can just give an, is there an example, you can kind of answer this, of, of a company that is just doing a role model excellent job um, in addressing these issues that's really moving the needle? And if you can't think of one, then what is, define it so that, you know, in five years, we've got a, or three years, we've got a different report. So what are the Alexis, I'll, I'll oh, let you go gave first. You a really easy. Yeah, I was going to say with a <laughs> limited time, it is extremely hard to isolate the the winners when it comes to diverse talent gains because they're so fragile still today. Um, what I'd say about companies who are doing it best is they get underneath the basics to really put rigor into each of the practices they choose to be the power practices for them. So to, you know, Bev's example, they measure and they um, create metrics for leaders, but they create some form of accountability behind that and rigor to what they expect so people know how far, how fast they have to go. Um, they have basic policies, but they really focus on policies that make a difference, particularly for women in moments of need. So it's not childcare subsidies, it's emergency care, because in that double shift or triple shift, when you have an emergency issue, it's the woman who has to step in. And so I think for companies, what we see is those who are breaking away are those uh, companies that are putting that rigor of like really leaning into it and figuring out what it takes at the next level, not just kind of broad brush strokes, but real specifics to move the needle. And then they measure and track and obsess about their progress over time. Great. And Bev, you get the last word. Oh my goodness. I think if I could just answer it, um, maybe from the, the chair that I sit in and the space that I'm in right now, it's a, it's a company where people want to come and want to work there and want to be there because they feel a sense of belonging. 
they believe that they can bring their authentic selves to work and that there is meaningful work to be done. It's a company where there's community, where there's a rich sense of purpose, and where at the end of the day, the work we do really impacts people's lives. And it's a group of leaders who are standing firmly in you know, what we believe in, um, educating, developing, and, and celebrating success all along the way. So if I can create a company like that, I'll be super, super excited about where we land. Well, very wonderful. I want to thank Alexis Krivkovich, Senior Partner, McKenzie & Company, and Beverly Anderson, President and CEO, BECU. It's really been a wonderful and enlightening and inspiring conversation. So thanks very much. Thank you. Both of you. And if you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. And thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.